You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in tonight on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review. We are heading down the home stretch of 2016. We've got three more shows to go tonight, and then Thursday and Friday evenings will be our first ever two-part end-of-year show. We always do a big end-of-year program, but since the show's bigger than it's ever been, we thought, hey, the end of the year needs to be bigger as well. So it's going to be a two-part year-end special beginning tomorrow night and then we'll have some fill-ins some some worst ofs uh some the team will uh, here around uh, the steve day show uh, sans me uh, we'll do some fill-in work as well we will muddle through the next couple of weeks while i am on a much-deserved vacation if i do say so myself until then though we love to know what you think about what we think steve at stevedace.com is the email address like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. As many of you know, my number one issue is the life issue. And, and I don't even think the life issue is a litmus test. I think it's something even bigger than that. I think the life issue is a window to the soul. And when you have when you have a culture that claims to be as educated and as enlightened as ours is, but we're going on 56 million of our children mass executed and counting, our actions would seem to say otherwise. Our actions would seem to say that despite all of our trinkets and toys and technology, there is some savage barbarism. There is man's inhumanity to man lingering just underneath the surface. Some of the worst, really, in the history of the world. I mean, the most precious resource any culture has is its future, its own children. And if you look through history, whether you look through Old Testament Israel um, or you look through pagan history, what you're going to find is the darkest moments in those cultures is always accompanied by some form of child sacrifice. And we do the same in our day. It's just the altar we go to isn't to Molech or to Chemosh or even Dormammu. Uh, The altar we go to is personal convenience. For 43 years, there has been a movement in America that has done at times its best to stop this blight on the soul of our nation. But aspects of this movement are confused. What really is it that we are arguing? What tactically is the best way to go about ending this once and for all? I'm someone that's been in the middle of that debate for the last several years. I've been on every side over the course of my time in politics. I've been on every side of this tactical debate. From 
we can only do incremental steps to incremental steps are bad to where I am now. And where I am now is anything that doesn't cause us to get closer to asserting the premise of why we are pro-life. That life is a gift from God. That God hates the extinguishing of innocent life and will severely punish a culture for it. And that life begins at conception because it can only begin where it can begin. The first biological step to life is when sperm meets egg. That's known as conception. That's when it has to start. It, It can't start any earlier than that. And it can't start after that because that's what has to happen first. And anything that doesn't get us closer, therefore, to those points is a waste of our time. It's, it's, a, it's, it's naive do-gooderism at best. It is a total scam at worst. Some people just disagree with me tactically because they have the same convictions. They just disagree with me tactically, and that's okay. We've had some great conversations, maybe even arguments over the years about this. And then there are people who really aren't pro-life. But this is a moneymaker. And really all they exist to do is to provide fig leaves for sellout Republican politicians who are fake pro-lifers, who will veto substantive pro-life bills in order to pass things they know have little to no merit and will accomplish nothing. So they can earn their fake we-below pro-life badge and lie to millions of you for another two, four, or six years. If you want to know what that looks like, I want to turn your attention to the state of Ohio yesterday. Governor John Kasich was presented with pro-life bills. Now, there's anti-abortion, and then there is pro-life, in my view. Anti-abortion means you, you seek really strictly to regulate the practice of abortion. Oh, you may claim it's pro-life, but really, really you're not advancing a life case. You're, advance, you're advancing a, you know, too much abortion is icky case, or this type of abortion is icky case. That's not a pro-life case. You just think this particular time period methodology of carrying out the execution is a little unseemly. You're uncomfortable with it. So we want to just ban that. Some of you think we banned partial birth abortion in the George W. Bush years, and we did not. In fact, we're one of only six nations on earth that still even allow this procedure. Not even the pagans in France permit this. We do, though. Well, Steve, I mean, we had a partial birth. No, you don't have a partial birth abortion ban. Carhart versus Gonzalez did not give you a partial, did not uphold Bush's partial birth abortion ban. All it simply did was say, you can't do the partial birth abortions this way. But if you do them all the other ways, in fact, if you read the opinion, it tells you the other ways that you can do them. It's like a how-to manual. And it tells you, hey, as long as you do it this way, it's okay. We only banned a method of doing it. It's like we said, well, you can't use this kinds of gas on the Jews at Auschwitz, but you can use the other gases. That's okay. It's like, well, you can't use this kind of whip on your Negro slaves. Can't do that. But if you use another kind of whip on your Negro slaves, that's all right. That's essentially what we fought for. Sounds asinine, I know. That's why I've often told you over the years it didn't save any children. So yesterday, John Kasich is given an anti-abortion bill, which is one of these phony baloney 20-week bans. That, that's not going to save any kid. Okay, they're just going to lie, guys. Ask Kermit Gosnell. That's why he's in a prison cell today. For years, they just forged x-rays, forged ultrasound results. 
to conform to Pennsylvania's unenforceable and and not even attempting to enforce anti-abortion restrictions. And the only reason they found out what Kermit Gosnell was doing is because they thought he was running a pill pill farm out of his own clinic. So they went in there thinking he was giving out prescription drugs under the table and pocketing the money. And when they found out that he was really overseeing something much worse, a house of horrors, that's why he's in prison today. But you can pass a 19-week. These guys will just lie. Okay, well, it's at 18 days and 18 weeks and six days. It can be 20 weeks, 20. Just name a time period. They're just gonna lie. And since these always have the life of the mother exception, because there's literally never a case to kill a kid to save the mom, you may have to deliver the baby early to help the mother, but there's never a case to then kill the baby afterwards. So since they all have this exception, all they have to say is, well, the mom's life was at stake, so we had to kill this kid and nobody asks any questions. So he was given this phony bill, which doesn't, which is, is, it's purely intended to help repu- squishy Republicans who aren't pro-life earn some kind of pro-life merit badge so you can all be lied to. That's the only reason these things exist. Then he was given a real pro-life bill. And this is now where life's going to be defined when a heartbeat is detected. Well, Steve, you just said that you thought life begins at conception, but notice we're getting closer to that point. Now, that's what you call real incrementalism. We're, we're moving the ball towards our end zone now. After all, who would deny that anything with a heartbeat is alive? No sane person would. No sane person would. So if you win the argument... That the, 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 the human being is alive when there's a heartbeat, sometimes thoroughly as 16 days or something. If you win that argument, you're a lot closer to winning your ultimate point now than you are with these phony baloney 23, 24, whatever these fake bills are that don't save any kids. And John Kasich, while claiming to be pro-life, he vetoed that legislation. Signed the fake legislation instead. And then his own Ohio Right to Life chapter publicly thanked him for this. That is wicked. The devil smiles at that. And this is an example how many of you have been lied to for years by what is essentially an industry that raises money off of the slaughter of children as opposed to doing what it takes to finally end it. You're listening to Steve Dace. Radio's version of the Red Pill. You take the Red Pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. It's Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review here on the Salem Radio Network. Let's go inside politics. Speaking of Conservative Review, Daniel Horowitz joins us one final time here in 2016. My friend, it is good to have you with us. How are you? Great to be with you, Steve. I'm jealous of your vacation. Yes, every year I save up a whole bunch of time so I can do this the last two weeks and get recharged. And I liked it so much the first year that I've been doing this my whole career. So the only bad thing about it is 
when I get down to that last week, I've got senioritis really bad because I know what's coming, you know? So um, th- these like next few days are going to seem like marathons. Nonetheless, it beats going down a mine sh- shaft of the flashlight, so let's get to it. I want to go to what I opened the show with tonight, and what that's what happened in Ohio yesterday with the pro-life issue. There's two sides of this issue I want to discuss with you. The, f- the second part we'll leave off for a few moments, and that is this whole argument that we can't do any things that uh, this, the court hasn't already deemed we uh, have approved, just the entire fallacy of that argument. We're going to tackle that one in a minute. But I want you to speak to the, the duopoly that we see here within uh, the Repu- certain elements of the Republican Party and, the, and the, what I call the pro-life industry. People that just exist to raise money off of dead kids but really are never, are never in favor of any strategies that might stop it and end it once and for all. And I think we saw this yesterday in Ohio with, with Kasich vetoing what I, would, what I view as a real pro-life bill, which is defining that life begins when there's a heartbeat so that we're actually getting closer incrementally to making our point as opposed to one of these phony 20-week bill bans that no one ever enforces. They just the, these abortion doctors, as we saw in the Gosnell case, just lie about what week the woman is at. No one ever checks up on it. These are just fig leaf bills to to, to build political resumes for squish Republicans and national right to life in most of its state chapters. They go along with this all the time, and we saw this in Ohio yesterday. and And I know you're going to verify me on this, with the or verify this with the audience, because you've been involved in a lot of primaries around the country where you guys went out and recruited real, sincere, convicted pro life candidates and then saw national right to life for their local state chapters come in and oppose you and and back to squish instead it's all business i mean the thing is you can't win if you don't fight and you can't fight if you don't believe and that's the thing there is no social conservative movement anymore i think we learned this and and just to tie in to roe and casey to tie in obergefell Many of us thought there would be a revolution after the unelected courts would redefine the building block of all civilization from the bench. Nothing doing there. Absolutely nothing doing. Because there was no scam to be made off of it. There was nothing more to further their cause. But you might say, well, I don't know, maybe society has changed so much they felt that was a losing issue. But that, that can't be the reason. Because life, if anything, is the one issue that's turning the other way because of technology. You know, even from the time our six-year-old was born to our two-year-old, there was a difference in that the two-year-old, they now have um, 3D sonograms where you could have 3D color images. And at 20 weeks already, now they don't do sonograms before, but at 20 weeks, I was able to see that our youngest, Zach, looked exactly like our middle son. And indeed, when he came out, he looked exactly like that. You could see the person. People, people see that now. But yet we've moved on to the point where Building off of Rowan Casey, the courts are now mandating funding for a private organization under investigation for harvesting baby organs. They are now throwing out every last common sense regulation that, that you know, the government would regulate any health clinic, for, forgetting about the moral issue of abortion. And our people just take it. There is no floor. There's no floor because it is all about the ends, and the ends is the Republican Party, and the Republican Party is a dead end for the life issue as well as every other issue, but there's nothing more foundational than life. We had Andy Schlafly from Eagle Forum on this show uh, a few days ago, uh, and he is trying to lead an effort to vet these ju- justices that are on the, the heritage list that uh, Donald Trump put out last spring after he became uh, the nominee to essentially give conservatives a reason to support him, skeptical conservatives. And he's been looking at the pro-life records of several of these justices. He's been troubled by what he has found. 
um, and, and, and says in many cases, these justices really are not pro-life. And he said here on this show, he was concerned that, that Trump would put up a David Souter kind of judge. And just as we saw in the 90s when George H.W. Bush put up Souter, National Right to Life would say, no, this guy's really with us when he's not. And that we would see this all over again where Trump would put up some kind of David Souter type of judge and National Right to Life would come in and, and, and tell a whole bunch of pro-lifers around the country that this guy's great, even though Souter has gone on to vote against us on the life issue every time his entire judicial career. Do you think that's a legitimate concern? Wow. So I, I am familiar with a lot of his letters, and I must say I don't know if I could vouch for his research on every individual um, you know, prospective candidate, but I think it's a little bit more fundamental. I think most of them, if not all of them, probably are pro-life, but that's not the issue. Once you agree that the federal judiciary is the sole and final arbiter of every social and political issue, including those that are manifestly not discussed in the Constitution— You've lost. This has been the failure of the pro-life movement for 40 years. Oh, let's get a better conservative pro-life justice on on the court. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, when we can, we should do that. But if that's your main argument, we're never going to get there. At present, at best, we have two votes to overturn Roe. That's Thomas and and Alito. And I'm not 100% sure Alito would, would, you know, rip it out of its socket like Thomas would. Thomas definitely would. Most of these guys, I think they are pro-life, but they do agree to a um, certain, at least certain measure of this one-directional stare decisis precedent that once the left pokes a hole in the Constitution once, uh, even after 200 years of settled law and the plain meaning of the Constitution, you have to abide by it. So that's what I'm saying. It is a failure of our movement for 40 years that we have acceded to every degree of judicial tyranny. Until we get off of that, we are not going to solve the life issue. You're making a very important point that I want to make sure our, under- our audience understands. When, when, when Daniel uses a term, stare decisis, what, what he is essentially saying, and if you don't like the wording I'm going to use, Daniel, by all means, correct me. But what he's essentially saying in the way that that's interpreted by the judicial community in our day and age is that the law is whatever the latest case law or precedent or the weightiest case law or precedent says it is. It's not necessarily based on a pre-existing standard, like the laws of nature and nature's God, like the Constitution, for example. So if we had this understanding at the founding of the Republic that no person can be denied life, liberty, or property without due process of law, but some justices come around in 1973 and decide that, well, persons doesn't apply to unborn children, so they can be denied life, liberty, and property without due process of law, that despite whatever the Constitution's actual wording is that is that that precedent now takes weight this is now what the constitution means and everything else must be interpreted within that and there even is among conservative justices this idea that strict constructionism requires them to uphold things that clearly go against the higher law whether that be the constitution or the laws of nature and nature's god and that they therefore would act like the judge in judgment at nuremberg who made the argument at nuremberg to our tribunal that he was he had he had no choice but to send Jews to gas chambers because that was the law. He tried to find every loophole he could. He tried to save as many as he could. But in the end, when he ran out of loopholes, he had to follow as as, as the law was written. He had to follow it. And you know, Daniel, what we did to that judge when he made that case at Nuremberg? You know what we did? We hung him. We hung him because we told him actually there's a higher law than that. I want you to address that point when we return. Stay tuned.
You're listening to Steve Dace. What a blaze of glory sounds like. The Steve Day Show. Back here on the Steve Day Show here on the Salem Radio Network. Daniel Horowitz is here with us taking taking us inside politics from Conservative Review. And Daniel, I want you to address sort of this debate that's been going on even within conservative legal circles. What does constructionism mean? What does originalism mean? What does it mean to follow precedent? Are there, can, can human authorities override the natural law or the divine law or the Ten Commandments uh, that our legal system was originally based on or even the words of the Constitution itself? I want to let you now uh, give the audience sort of your response to what I was laying out prior to the break. You know, Steve, let me give you an equation, a political equation that I gave over to a group of about 20 House members. Recently, I gave a seminar on judicial reform, and I'll unpack it for you. All right. Judicial supremacy plus judicial exclusivity plus unelected life tenure plus living and breathing constitution plus stare decisis equals a hellish scam even King George never imagined. And let me explain that. So it's not just the fact that the legal profession believes the Constitution is the exact opposite of what it actually says. What's a fundamental right is not. What's a federal power is state. State is a fed. What's in it is outright up and down, right? But it's that they believe that the judiciary is the sole and final arbiter of constitutional interpretation. Again, so it's in the palm of their hands. They only have it. They have the final word. They get to say it's whatever they think it is. And once they say it's that thing, so they could poke a hole in precedent, overturn 200 years of settled case law plus the plain meaning of the Constitution on the most foundational issue. But then once they do it, stare decisis. Oh, and by the way, they're not elected and they have life tenure. Mm-hmm. Right? So they have a perfect – this is the perfect scan. This is the biggest constitutional emergency we have in our country. As you know, I wrote my book on it. I don't understand how we tolerate it even for one day. But so we we have a disagreement here, not just in the interpretation of the Constitution. It's in the foundational role of the courts. Conservatives still buy into the notion of judicial, judicial supremacy. If I have one thing to give over to people about Marbury versus Madison, where this all supposedly emanates from, There is a difference even under the Marshall, John Marshall system. There's a difference between judicial review and judicial exclusivity slash supremacy. Mm -hmm. All Marshall was saying, at least in word, he had his political motivations, but all he was saying was that if a case comes before the court, of course their main job is to interpret the statute. But if the statute manifestly violates the Constitution as written, it's a bill of attainder, you know, ex post facto, it, it, it gives states the power to tax interstate commerce, something that's totally backwards. Every judge swears an oath to uphold the Constitution, so they have to abide by the Constitution. How much more so every legislature, every member of the executive branch, every state government swears the same oath? He just meant that also even the unelected judiciary you might think would have no say in it they, for their purposes, a case comes before them when they're trying to interpret the Constitution as it was written, they have the right to do so. 
But the notion that they are a judicial veto that stands on top of the system, e- even, even if they're trying to interpret the Constitution in a reasonable fashion, but the notion that they have the final say, it is absolutely not true. And until we get off of that, we will never solve this problem. We also need to understand what is it, what is, what is an activist judge? For example, if, 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 if someone brings a, a suit against legislation to a federal court that says everybody named Daniel Horowitz can be shot on sight and says, hey, that, you know, um, even though this was passed by the legislature, even though this was signed into law by the duly elected executive, whether it be a governor or a, pre- or a president, this goes against both the spirit and letter of the Constitution, not to mention decency, not to mention the highest law of them all, which is thou shall not murder. You want It is not the activist judge who says, yeah, I'm going to strike that down because it goes against those precedents. That's actually the very definition of, of originalism. The, the, that judge is looking at the most original precedent of them all, the laws of nature and nature's God saying, you're not allowed to do that. The activist judge is the one who both reinforces and then perpetuates this infringement on your basic God-given rights. That's also an argument we have to win. What does that term activist judge really mean? Yeah, an activist judge is someone who does not make a reasonable attempt to interpret the Constitution as it was originally adopted. You know, there are some gray areas even during the time of the founders, but there is no right to an abortion. There is no right to a gay marriage, right? No matter what you feel on the issue, there is no way you can constitutionalize that. But there's also another important thing that whatever your the court rules – that was not to be regarded as the sole and final word on it. That is the biggest point. So let's say you know Congress passed a law to murder people. It's not because the courts, quote-unquote, struck it down. They don't have the power to strike down rip-out statutes. It's because the people wouldn't let that happen. It's collectively all the branches. The, the judiciary is just one branch. There's also another form of activism, and that is standing. Right, you have to have a legitimate case and controversy where you have a fundamental right. I'm glad you're going here. It's where I was going to go next. Go ahead. Exactly. So I don't have a right to go to a court and say I am offended by a tablet of the Ten Commandments because mine eyes are pained when I have to look at it when I walk by to pass my water to pay my water bill at on city, you know, the city hall complex. This literally just happened in New Mexico two two months ago. That is, you you cannot bring that case to a court and they should never get standing. The standing thing is where I want to go next because I want to rip the fig leaf off the excuse Kasich and Ohio and National Right to Life were giving for why he did what he did yesterday. And you, you, are, you addressed it. We're going to flesh it out some more when we come back. You're listening to Steve Dace. No wasted ammo. This is Steve Dace. Back here on the Steve Dace Show here on the Salem Radio Network. Daniel Horowitz joins us from Conservative Review. He takes us inside politics each week and each Wednesday here on the show. Easy for me to say. So you use the term standing. The, the fig leaf, the excuse, the lie that, uh, that Governor Kasich and uh, National Right to Life uh, are using for why he vetoed what I would view as a real pro-life bill and, uh, and sustained and signed into law what is not really a pro-life bill but more of an anti-abortion bill, if you get the distinction I'm trying to draw. Um, 
the the reason being is they say that if he signs into law the bill that says life begins when a heartbeat can be detected, or at least it's recognized when a heartbeat can be detected. They'll end up in federal court. It'll never meet judicial review. It'll be a waste of everybody's time anyway. And if it's not a waste of everybody's time, then judges may actually use that to roll back all of their other super-duper pro-life attempts that have done nothing to stop the slaughter of 56 million children. The reality is, Daniel, a woman can walk into any abortion clinic at any stage of pregnancy or development anywhere there's a clinic in the United States. And if she simply says, my life is in danger and gets a lying so-called doctor who's a Joseph Mengele-like baby executor to go along with it like Kermit Gosnell, she can get an abortion whenever she wants. That's just the simple reality of 43 years of our political activism. That's what we've created. We didn't even ban partial birth abortion like we claim we did in the George W. Bush years. So their claim is that if we go with this heartbeat bill, it won't pass judicial muster, and they may even roll back all of the fake pro-life attempts we've made in the past that we told you we're working that aren't. My response to that is, if you say that we can't stop abortion until Roe versus Wade is overturned, where do you think you're going to come up with the consideration to cause that question to even be considered? In the first place, where does your standing come from to cause the court to reconsider the, the, the legitimacy of Roe? If it's not, when does life begin? What is a human life? Is something with a heartbeat, does that mean it's alive or not? If that doesn't create standing in order to at least cause Roe to be considered, then tell me what will. And how will you ever overturn Roe versus Wade, Daniel, if you don't generate legislation that will actually beg these sorts of questions? Well, I, I think it, in one sense, Kasich's right that, yeah, I mean, the courts, we know exactly where they're ruled. Like I told you, at best, there's two on the Supreme Court, and we won't be able to get it past the single circuit. That's the Sixth Circuit. Um, and by the way, the Sixth Circuit has a 10 to 5 GOP-appointed majority on the active bench, but of course, we don't have a majority originally there. But where, where he is wrong and appallingly wrong is this. So not only have we anointed the unelected judiciary as the sole and final arbiter standing on top of the, the, the food pyramid here. Now we have preemptive vetoes. So we have this judicial veto that was never created. Now we have governors and state legislatures preemptively saying, you know what, we won't follow our conscience, our best political motivations, and our version of the Constitution because of what the courts might say. I mean, th- th- think, the courts loom so large now that they preemptively surrender because of it, it's even more than a, it's a preemptive veto. The, the question of standing is an important thing. One of the reasons why judicial review morphed into judicial supremacy and it wasn't supposed to is notice that – let me ask you a philosoph- philosophical question here. If the courts were meant to be the final arbiter, then wouldn't they have a seamless uh, way of getting it to the court. You know, why would you have to have a legitimate standing? Just go and veto a piece of legislation like the Council of Revision that the founders toyed with but rejected. The answer is, of course, they were given no such power. It's an individual has legitimate standing, but the problem is the courts, the same way they have stare decisis on the constitutional interpretation, they have stare decisis established precedent on, on standing. So the left has standing to, you know, Sue for funding for Planned Parenthood. Think about it. How could a private entity sue to get taxpayer funding for a private organization of any sort, You know, much less one under criminal investigation? Yet 
people, you know, states and law enforcement and taxpayers can't get standing to sue against Obama not enforcing immigration laws and states are flooded with the effects of it. So the, the standing rules are so rigged. Here's the bottom line. You can't get around the 800-pound gorilla in the room. We will never win the court game. We will never have enough power to appoint enough so-called good judges. There aren't enough good judges that could undo the 50 years of damage. We have to pull the rug out from under them. Congress has to strip them of their power, which they have. States have to just say no. And one other thing, in Ohio, a couple months ago, you know what else a judge did? Said that a school district had to treat, quote, a boy like the girl she is. Well, is that the law of the land, too? At some point, you got to say no. I keep saying that. I've said that on this show for years when it was a local show in Des Moines, Iowa, and then it was a bit of a somewhat syndicated show. And now that it's a nationally syndicated show, I have been saying at some point, these judges will render something so completely insane. So completely confounding, crazy, un- not even unconstitutional, but anti-constitutional, indecent, immoral, etc. That at some point they will render something we will say no to. I don't know what that is, but at some point they will. I have been saying that now, Daniel, for going on 10 years. I'm not sure what they could render that we would say no to. There's nothing more immutable than the laws of nature and you know gender, sexuality. And they're doing that and people don't even bat an eyelash. You know, I, I, just in the remaining time, I want to quote from you from Larry Kramer, the dean of the Princeton Law School. He said, quote, neither the founding generation nor their children nor their children's children, right on down to our grandparents' generation, were so passive about their role as Republican citizens. They would have not accepted, did not accept being told that a lawyerly elite had charge of the Constitution and that they would be incredulous if told, as they are today, that the main reason to worry about who becomes president is that the winner will control the judicial appointments. Something would have gone terribly wrong, they believed, if an unelected judiciary were being given that kind of importance and deference. Perhaps such a country could still be called democratic, but would no longer be the kind of democracy Americans had fought and died for. Daniel, excellent work, my friend, again this week. Um, Each of your contributions on this show each week uh, during what has been an incredible year. Uh, in American history, 2016, have been noteworthy, and we greatly appreciate them, and uh, we look forward to the new year as well, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Merry Christmas to you, and enjoy your time off. Appreciate it. Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review, taking us inside politics. More in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. It's about convictions, not positions. Steve Dace. Slave bells ring. Are you listening? In the lane, snow is glistening. Well, it's it's not been the most uplifting political year, even if many of us are happy with the result. For example, the word refugee, for many now, has a negative connotation. But with our partnership at Heart for Lebanon, we want to focus on the children, not the adult refugees, because the children are not terrorists. 
And this is an opportunity for us to reach them with the gospel right where they are, children just like Joseph. The Christ-centered education and love that Joseph is getting at Heart for Lebanon's Hope Center is changing his way of life. We had very little when we came to Lebanon during the war, but now, because of a fire in our house, we have nothing. When the teachers at the Hope Center heard about that house fire, they decided to collect some clothes to give to the family. The next day, Joseph came wearing pants that one of the teachers had given him. And that's when something very interesting happened. I found money in those pants. We're a very poor family, but that didn't belong to me. I knew I had to give it back to my teacher. Joseph could have kept that money without anyone ever knowing about it, yet he chose to do the right thing. And that's not a coincidence. Just days earlier, all of the children at the Hope Center were going through a month-long curriculum that taught about the biblical character trait of honesty. And now Joseph was putting that into practice. And that's the great thing about Heart for Lebanon's Hope Center. It turns out that Heart for Lebanon is not only helping a lost generation of kids learn the basics in English, science, and math, but they're also building a community of faith rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your one-time gift of just $98 can reach 18 children like Joseph with the gospel. Just $98 with a message that's going to change the lives and maybe the eternal destinies of 18 children in some of the most troubled parts of the world just like Joseph. Here's how you can help us help them. 844-441-9966 is the number. That's 844-441-9966. You can also just go to our website at stevedace.com. Click on the banner right there on the website, D-E-A-C-E, stevedace.com. For $98, would you send the gospel all over the world to change the lives of 18 children? I know a lot of you would, so please call right now, 844 441 9966 844-441-9966 or click on the banner right there on my website that's stevedace.com you're listening to steve dace This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Back with Hour 2 of the Steve Day Show here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. So let us know. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Last name spelled D-E-A-C-E. Coming up later in this hour, perhaps the most 
troubling email this program has ever received. Also, on that whole the polls were wrong in 2016 thing, we've got an update on that as well. But you'll notice we just did Inside Politics last hour with our political insider, Daniel Horowitz, from Conservative Review. And we never talked about the Tillerson saga, even though we spent so much time discussing it for two days on this show. And, and the reason why we didn't bring it up is, one, what happened in Ohio on the, on the veto from Kasich, I think, was more timely. The other reason being is the fact that the left wants to oppose Tillerson not on the grounds that he has a bromance with the world's most corrupt gangster dictator, but because of global warming, indicates to me that whatever opposition currently exists towards Tillerson, unless he goes in to his confirmation hearing next month and makes fart noises with his armpit, if that's what the left is going to lead with, they're actually going to turn out more Republicans. They're going to turn out skeptical Republicans for, for Tillerson. Because they're going to say, whatever our reservations are, we are not going to set a precedent that someone who doesn't believe in your fake re- religious enviro-cult enviro can't be the Secretary of State. So to me, that, that's a non-starter unless Tillerson blows his confirmation. Because what you've seen since Trump's win is the actions from the left, they are already hard at work on his 2020 get-out-the-vote effort. Because they're the best GOTV he has. And there's an article over at The Federalist that I think taps into this. You know, there's this YouTube video going around right now with some Hollywood celebrities urging the Electoral College electors to not vote for Trump. (laughs) And I saw Rory Cooper, who is a nice guy, fellow Michigan fan, but he's also kind of your quintessential GOP establishment uh, consultant. He's just not a douche canoe about it like some of these other guys are. He's actually a decent human being, you know. He's just an honest, to goodness moderate. And he's like, you know what, his response to this was, you know what, You guys make me want to run for the Electoral College to vote for Trump, and I was never Trump, all right? But that's what your act, that's what you create with these antics. And I think this article at The Federalist, Six Ways Hollywood Will Overreact to the Age of Trump, is right along those lines. Christian Toto joins us now here. He is the author of this piece, and Christian, Merry Christmas. It's a pleasure to have you with us tonight. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Did you intend... When you wrote this piece, did you intend for it to sort of feed into this zeitgeist of how the the left is doing a better job converting Trump skeptics such as myself than Donald Trump could have possibly imagined? Or were you just intending to to lay down markers of what their overreach will actually look like? I've been looking at Hollywood for quite some time, and it just seemed as predictable as almost anything. And, you know, I'm like you, I've been very critical of Trump, and in a way, and the celebrities are rallying me to Trump's side. That's that's what they're doing, and we're not alone. So yeah, I just I just saw what was happening. I saw the reaction immediately after election day, and I just know how celebrities think. I mean, the celebrities are just like the liberals inside the Beltway. They do the same things. They react the same way. They don't learn the same lessons that they should be learning, and they act accordingly. It's it's it, it didn't take a crystal ball on my part. And some of these things that I wrote about are, have already come true, or at least are on the way. All right, let's take a look at these six ways that you think that Hollywood is going to help Trump's 2020 get-out-the-vote effort, basically. Let's start with number one, and, and I don't watch a lot of late-night TV. I, it, I just I don't care. I'm, our show ends at midnight Eastern, and when I go home, the last thing I want to think about is this subject matter that I just spent all night talking about. So I'm at home watching you know, TV shows I DVR'd, I'm, I'm watching sporting events, or I'm playing PlayStation, right? I, I, I get away from this. So I don't watch 
any of these guys. I've never seen three seconds of Trevor Noah. I don't even know what a Samantha B is. All right. But you, you mentioned, I know Stephen <laughs> Colbert. Am I lucky? Thank you. I know Stephen Colbert, obviously, because he's sort of become his own force of nature in pop culture. Um, and he took over David Letterman's slot, right? So I, I'm not familiar though with late night TV. What's going on there? And why do you think that they're going to help Trump get out his 2020 vote? So a couple of things. One, you don't even have to watch TV at this point because every entertainment outlet reports on Stephen Colbert destroys Trump's pick. Uh, Samantha B excoriates Trump for X, Y, and Z. Almost every single day, those headlines flash across my computer screen. And so for people who watch the shows or for people who are reading just sort of the entertainment headlines, they get this daily dose of it. All these late night comics have been against Trump for months and months, and that's perfectly fine. He's, you know, he's, he's cartoonish, he's fair game, he's a reality show star, but they are so over the top and so apoplectic about it that wait till he gets in office. He hasn't done anything yet in tech. I mean, he's still president-elect. He's still shaping his cabinet. The world has an end ended. There haven't been internment camps. <laughs> Any of the sort of the nonsense that's coming out, nothing has happened yet, and they're acting as if he just started World War Three, Four, and Five. I mean, at some point, even liberals have to be watching and go, boy, this is exhausting. I mean, I can't imagine that burnout's not going to happen sooner than later. Can you sustain this level of vitriol for four years? Can you really do it? I mean, didn't didn't Howard Dean prove when he tried to do this with the with Bush derangement syndrome in, in 2004 and his campaign got off to that rocket start and then it's supernova beginning here where I live in Iowa? Didn't didn't he prove that you really can't sustain a long term political effort strictly on apoplectic alone? I would think so. I mean, I think that these kind of cases burn out. You have to have some sort of moderation. You know, it's almost like when you go to the movies and you see a great action movie. It's not two hours of action. There are peaks and valleys. There are moments that are quiet. Then the action comes up and it's exciting. You can have this sort of outrage twenty four seven. So yeah, I you know. I think more and more people, frankly, will flock to Jimmy Fallon, who does The Tonight Show, who does silly bits, who isn't very political, and is charming and funny and doesn't try to offend half the country. His ratings are already at the top of that group. I think they're just going to grow after a while. Number two, documentarians to work 24-7. I've noticed Michael Moore has crawled out from whatever puss-infested spider hole he's been in the last eight years. He's back. I like this line that you put in your piece. Documentary filmmakers not named Dinesh D'Souza essentially took the last eight years off. I like that line. But we, this is going to, and both sides have this, right? I mean, D'Souza made millions off of Obama angst from the right, correct? So now the left will have its turn and we'll have Fahrenheit 9-11 like we had back in the Bush years just replayed for Trump, right? I mean, that hysteria, that hysteria does sell at the box office. You know, it does to a certain extent, but, you know, you mentioned D'Souza and how he worked sort of that Obama angst, but at the same time, he was essentially alone. There were a few really sort of small-scale documentaries that hit Obama from different directions, but the, the vast majority of documentarians, the big names in the field, not even just Michael Moore, they all basically took a, took a knee, and so that's going to change now. You're going to see them sort of rush back to work, start making films, and it's going to be interesting because, you know, if they attack all the pre-election Trump material, we know that. We know about Trump University. We know about some of the deals he did. We, we, we kind of absorbed it and just shrugged our shoulders and voted for him. At least enough people to make him win, win the election. So, you know, I don't think it's going to have any sort of major effect. I, I think, the, you know, the critics will love it. There's going to be lots of important think pieces about these particular films. 
And it's not going to move the needle of public opinion in iota. I don't think so. But if the check clears, does it really matter? I mean, Al Gore has become a lot wealthier since he started lying mm-hmm. about global warming, Christian. Yeah, I mean, listen, a lot of times this is not about even show business because, listen, during the, the George Bush years and all those anti-Iraq war films came out, it was flop after flop after flop after flop. And they kept making them. In fact, there was recently a movie about an Iraq war veteran. It was a massive flop. I mean, Hollywood doesn't learn its lesson. But you know what? If they're at a cocktail party, if they're kind of making that pitch to their colleagues, it sounds good on paper. They agree. And they're in a bubble. So no one's there to raise their, their hand and say, hey, those six other films flop pretty badly. Do you think we want to go in this direction? There's no one in that meeting who has that perspective. So they keep making them. So you'll keep seeing these documentaries. I guarantee it. It's going to be a flood. And uh, the bottom line is if they want to change hearts and minds, I just don't think it's going to happen. And you'd think that that would be the bottom line. Christian Toto is our guest here from The Federalist. He has a really interesting piece out. Uh, six ways Hollywood will overreact to the age of Trump. As, and, and I would say help him turn out the vote in 2020, much as the left did in 2016 as a backlash against them. Uh, Christian, can you on for a few minutes? I'm up against a break, but I want to spend a few more minutes on your piece. Do you mind? Yeah, happy to. All right, so we've already talked about late-night comics. Do you guys watch these shows? When we, 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 I've never asked you I before. used to watch Jimmy Fallon. When we go Jimmy home at night, Fallon. do you guys turn this stuff on? I used to watch Jimmy Fallon, um, but that was about the only one that I used to watch. My daughter, my oldest daughter, the performer, shows me some of the uh, like the lip-syncing and singing stuff that he does, like with Ariana Grande and stuff He's on creative. his show. That He's is phenomenal. That's yeah. great television. But I just watch the clips on YouTube, so I don't have to listen to any of the monologues or any of the other stuff, right? Just get the Cliff's Notes version. Mm-hmm. You into any of this stuff, Tom? Never. Never? Okay. <laughs> You forgot to throw in a Bob Humbug there when you threw with the, the finality by which you said this. It was implied. <laughs> More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Most of what we say is illegal in Europe. Get the truth while you still can. Steve Dace. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Back here on the Steve Dace Show, Christian Toto is here with us from The Federalist. Has an interesting piece that we're talking about tonight. Six ways you can count on Hollywood to overreact to the age of Trump, or I would subtitle it. Uh, Six ways you can count on pop culture to do everything they can to help Trump get reelected again in 2020 by creating their own backlash. We've already talked about late night comedians hitting peak outrage, documentarians to work 24-7, unreadable celebrity interviews. What do you expect to see on that front, Christian? Well, this is partly the celebrity's fault and also partly the reporter's fault, because when your reporter gets a celebrity today, chances are he or she is going to ask them about Trump or about politics or about the news of the day. Now, that really makes no sense. If I'm interviewing Tom Hanks, I want to hear about how he transformed into Sully. I want to hear about his career, how he's managed to, to be so successful and pick so many great projects. I don't care what Tom Hanks says about politics because it's not his forte. It's not his expertise. But that's not the way the world works these days. And at this point, I think a lot of actors are basically injecting politics into the conversation before it even begins. So uh, Michael Shannon who's a very good independent actor. He's been in a bunch of films, including Man of Steel. He went off on a, a tirade, a multiple-part multiple tirade recently during celebrity interviews, basically saying that Trump fans should be ready for the urn. I mean, that, that's the kind of vitriol that's happening right now. So I think more of this is going to happen. I think uh, your reporters would be kind of eager to get those clickbait headlines. And I think the actors will be just stewing over every different action that Trump takes. 
and it just makes these celebrity profiles, which can be fun and which can be interesting, almost unreadable. Hopeful celebrities taking a knee. By that, do you mean that they will try to uh, throw some optimism, some unity out there, and the minute they get trolled on Twitter, they punt? Is that what you're saying? Pretty much. Yeah, we've seen a couple of I mean, I mentioned Tom Hanks before. He was kind of magnanimous about that Trump's election recently, and so was Jeff Bridges. And I think two actors who are older, wiser, and kind of at least aren't going to sort of do that knee-jerk reaction to what's going on. I think those that those sort of symbols will be much more rare in the coming days and weeks. I think the pressure on celebrities to to make sure that they're saying sort of the pro-Trump line, but I mean by pro-Trump is sort of the echoing the line of Hollywood will be very strong. And I think if you have lesser known stars, actors who are just kind of coming up the ladder, if they say something hopeful about Trump, boy, I don't think it's going to go over well at all. I, I spoke to a comedian a few months back and she said, if you vote for Trump in Hollywood, it could really damage your career. And, you know, she wasn't she wasn't sort of trying to be outrageous, I don't think. I think she was just telling it like it is. And she's a Republican who wasn't a Trump fan, but she sort of looks at what's going on in Hollywood and has been behind the scenes, and that's what she's seen. So uh, it's just more of the same. And I, I just think the pressure will be very intense for people not to say anything kind or uh, give him a chance. I know you're wrong on number five. Because award shows couldn't become any more unwatchable than they already are. I have actually not watched an award show since the 19... I think I was in college, so this was... And those years are sort of a blur. But it was either the 1993 or 94 Oscars. And Richard Gere got up and gave like a 30-minute talk about the Dalai Lama. And, and then they passed the hat to save drama clubs in public schools. And I thought... Within this room, Christian is the gross domestic product of a banana republic. Why don't they just pass the hat like we used to at Little League games? They could fund every, uh, you know, for a skosh of what these folks make. They could fund every drama club in the United States ten times over. I have tapped out. I haven't watched one since then. That was nearly 25 years ago. Well, I'm with you. They're becoming really, really unwatchable at times. You know, I'm, I'm a Hollywood guy. As much as I'm critical of Hollywood, I still love a lot of the content. So I will watch them and I will suffer along. But what I what I fear and what I predict is that, especially with the Academy Awards, which will happen, I believe it's late February of uh, 2017, is that every other celebrity is going to use that podium moment to make their stand, to make their pitch about Trump, about the you know the world, about we're we're going in the slippery slope towards Nazism. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? But we've seen celebrities do this time and time again. And you know, after that particular Oscar moment, will be basically a few weeks after the inauguration. So I think the sort of the temperature will be red hot still, and I don't think celebrities are going to be holding back. And again, it's not appropriate. It doesn't, I'm not you know, saying that they don't have the right to free speech, but if you're at an award show for making a great movie and you've won the award and you're on stage, have a talking about the movie or maybe your colleagues or maybe the director or the screenwriter. That's the appropriate conversation. We're not there to watch you give a political speech. That's not your job. It's not your gig. It's not your expertise. So, But that doesn't stop them. I, I fear we're going to get a lot of that in the weeks and months to come. Although I will say there was a recent award show, kind of a much smaller scale, the Critics' Choice Award over the weekend, and there wasn't that much of that at all. So maybe, maybe some actors are kind of getting the message, but I kind of doubt it. Finally, you say Hollywood news outlets are going to promote all of the above. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, you talked about liberal bias in the press, and it's true, and it's real, and it's getting worse, and it's, it's undeniable. But as, a, as an entertainment reporter for a lot of years, I've witnessed the exact same thing with entertainment reporting. So 
if there's a new Michael Moore movie out, he may not be labeled as a progressive or he may be considered this sort of mastermind, this truth teller. And they won't bring up the fact that all sort of the discrepancies in his movies or if there's a movie that's pro-life, it might be described as propaganda. There's lots of bias baked into entertainment journalism. And we're already seeing lots and lots of stories that are basically calling the country racist for voting for Trump and different things like that. I mean, like I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, every other entertainment outlet cheers and celebrates when Stephen Colbert destroys Donald Trump. We're going to see more and more of that. And, and you know, I've already seen articles saying that, you know, in the age of Trump, the TV news must be tougher. We have to have more diversity. I mean, it's happening already, and uh, it's just going to get more intense as time goes on. Final thing, Christian, i got about a minute here. Are we going to see more more propaganda, openly propagandist attempts at movies, like the flop Miss Sloan from over the weekend? Are we going to see more of this? I, I have to say yes, in part because I don't think Hollywood learns its lesson. I think Miss Sloan is a classic example of lecture versus storytelling. Mm-hmm. And people stayed away in droves. But, I, you know, it isn't the first time we had truth from, I think it was a year or so ago, about the Dan Rather, Rathergate situation where... They try to paint rather in a, in a rosy light, even though he obviously failed failed to do his due diligence with that report. So, yeah, I wish I could say that it's going to slow down or end. I don't think it's going to happen, at least not yet. You wrote a great pre- piece, Christian. That's why we had it on the show tonight. Thank you for joining us, man. Good stuff. We appreciate it. Thank you. Christian Toto from The Federalist, talking about six ways pop culture will be turning out the vote for Trump in 2020. And they're already hard to work at it as we speak. Gentlemen, your thoughts on what we just talked to uh, Christian about? Yeah, it's. I mean, you're you're right, and, and he is as well. That they're already um, hard at work on this on this get out the vote effort, and it is just amazing. How do you? How does one get to the point where uh, one is so tone deaf and one is just so uh, not self aware that uh, they just keep going back to whatever hasn't worked and then dialed it up to eleven? It's uh, it's quite a sight to behold. And again, I've said this off the air and may have said it on the air as well. The Schadenfreude. Um, to some extent, after this Trump victory, is the the gift that keeps giving. Yeah, just take progressives where they want to go, and then sit back and go for a ride. If you're the Secretary of State, his name escapes me again. Rex Tillerson. Nominee, Rex Tillerson. Till, Tillerson. Mm-hmm. You're just hoping somehow you you plant the, that the first Democrat to get up there and start questioning you. But before I ask you any questions, I'd like to play five minutes from an inconvenient truth, and you just watch Tillerson like. Light yes. up. Yes. This is as is much fun as it is for us to watch. Those of us who really believe in these ideals, we're, we're, we're supposed to be conserving as conservatives. Mm-hmm. This is not good for us. Because the, the whole line becomes, which of the aggrieved fake victim groups is, is are you most offended by? Not what we actually stand for. You're listening to Steve Dace. You can agree with him, or you can be wrong. It's a free country. Steve Dace. Oh, holy night, the stars are bright. Back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review here on the Salem Radio Network. Over the years, we have gotten a lot of disturbing emails on this show, but the the one I'm about to share with you is among the most troublesome. In fact, I, I thought about referring to on to some, the proper authorities. 
Over the last week, there has been a brewing controversy raging within a segment of this audience. Largely over Aaron's musical tastes. Your musical tastes. Aaron's musical tastes. <laughs> and whether I am I'm, I'm justified in the corporal punishment I have... Which you are not. Uh, ...been doling out uh, on the air regarding his, shall we call them, questionable preferences. Um, I, I have... I have received at least two dozen emails <laughs> me too. about the year of the cat, for example. I still have people tweeting me about this. Are you getting this stuff, too? Oh, yeah. And it's pretty split, by the way. Really? Yeah, about 50% of people think I'm right. Other 50% don't know the hell year the cat even is. So it's pretty split. Well, 50% like, of people Like, are nobody wrong. agrees with you, okay? But everybody either agrees with me or doesn't know what, what we're even talking about. So I get this email from, and I hesitate to use his name, because I'm afraid of, of what outing him on national radio is going to do to this individual. And then when you, when you understand what he sent to us, you recognize he deserves this shaming. This is almost, frankly, it's almost like a subconscious plea for help. Almost, this is beyond. Because I get the same thing when you talk about um, your musical preferences, but that's just that's just me. This this is this is beyond confess your unpopular opinions. Are you calling an intervention? To I, I right am. Now? This is this is really a psychosis. What this says. The gentleman's name is Chris Downey, and he sent me an email a couple of days ago, and here's all it said: You need to look at the log in your own eye. Of course, the Alan Parsons project sucks. But somebody who thinks the Beatles were actually good has no standing to say so. Now, there is confess your unpopular opinions. There is attempt to be the avant-garde, edgy contrarian. And there's self-immolation. And then there's, yes, then there is that. That's like standing up saying, well, you know, we don't have a turkey at Thanksgiving, you know, because we're like making a statement, like pardon the bird, you know, so we have like asparagus and we grill it instead. All right. No. No, 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 this is not an opinion you're allowed to have because you have to be mind-numbed in order to have it. I mean, you are allowed to have it, but you should not feel as if you are free to express such an opinion. That doesn't mean you have to think they were great. But much of the pop music that the, that the West has enjoyed for the last 40 years would not have been made possible without John, Paul, George, and Ringo. The idea of the concept album, they invented that with Sgt. Peppers, for example. Pop music, they, they made it a global phenomenon. The idea of, of, of what you've seen artists like Madonna and U2 do in our age, where they reinvent themselves every couple of years. You had psychedelic Beatles, you had hippie Beatles, you had grunge Beatles. That's why they lasted that, so long. They were the first group to do that. Oh, they are. They are. It, it, they are essentially. It's like the old argument about what is who's the greatest president. It's an easy argument, actually. George Washington, because he was the first. And if he sucked, there wasn't going to be a second, guys. If just nearly everything that we have taken for granted in pop music for the last five decades, Todd originates with the Beatles. All right, Abbey Road, for my money, one of the greatest albums of all time. The double album, the White Album. A lot of things we take for granted now, they started. They were the trailblazers. Even the drug-induced pop star using their own stonerism as creative inspiration 
That's how we got half of Sgt. Pepper's and Magical Mystery Tour, for example. Almost, most of our cliches begin and end with the Beatles. How someone could air such an opinion and feel as if, Todd, they have the freedom to say such mundane stupidity and in open-air public consumption, like this Chris Downey in his email, I am ashamed. Well, as, as someone who, just my ear, has never fallen in love with the Beatles. I've always liked a discussion, a contrarian who would say, I think the Stones were better. Only because those discussions usually end up elevating both of them. You find, you're you talking about great versus great, and you end up having a better appreciation for both. But this is a disease that goes way beyond music. This is, a, this is in the water these days. Somebody who says something with the force of religious fervor that is on every level philosophically, scientifically, morally Thank you. debased. Thank you. You are banned. You're listening to Steve Dace. Ever exceeding your low expectations, the Steve Day Show. Now for something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. See, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. This is the Nightly Buzz here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. This is when we take a look back at some of the headlines we missed from earlier in the show, because not even when you have three hours can you cover everything worthy of covering. So our producer, Aaron, he finds out during the day what else is trending on your social media, what else is trending at your water cooler. He's got the buzz for us. He's got those headlines. We've got the hot takes. Thank you, Steve. First story, the final, final national popular vote numbers are in. And Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump 48.2% to 46.1%. Now, the final real clear politics polling average had it 46.8% for Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump 43.6%. So RCP had uh, Hillary winning by an average of 2.4, and she won the popular vote by 2.1%. So much for the polls were wrong. I mean that is nailing it. That that's you're not even the that's not even a margin for error. I mean that is that's like pinning the tail on the donkey with a blindfold, guys. And 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 that's the third election in a row in a row that the real clear politics polling average has been or fourth in a row because this has be, become a thing since 2004. So four eight twelve, four eight twelve six. So four in a row. It's 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 faux 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 Moses Malone. See the polls, and I want to make sure we remember this when we go into future election cycles. The polls did not get it wrong. Those of us who analyze their data and draw conclusions from what they say, we are the ones that got it wrong. We took a look at a margin that looked very similar to the Obama-Romney margin four years ago and assumed, much as Obama's get-out-the-vote superiority over Romney manifested itself state-by-state on Election Day, that Hillary's would do the same anticipating that, yes, she may not have as much enthusiasm for a candidacy on the left as Obama did, but Trump is not nearly as well organized as Romney was. 
that was the error we made in our projections and conclusions off of this data. And I want to make sure we always remember that. Because here's what we can't do, Todd. I understand we want to throw a lot of bathwater out, a lot of dirty, mangy, soiled bathwater that is America's media and punditry culture. I get that. And I'm okay with it. I'm fine with it. In fact, I have been urging this cleanse in my career for many a year. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater as well. We still have to have some objective criteria by which to, 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 to govern ourselves, by which to have some filter of what's true and what is not, what is reality and what is not. And so my fear is that, we're, that, in, that instead of a cleanse, we're going to have a purge. And that's, that, that just creates now moral and intellectual anarchy where oligarchy and incest once reigned. That's not an upgrade. That's just a, a, that's just a trade. That's just a trade of which dysfunction do you prefer? But that is not an upgrade. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The data got it largely right. Those of us who drew our conclusions and projections, and notice I'm saying us because I'm in this group, those of us who drew our conclusions and projections based on what that data said, we were the ones that got it wrong. I think the interesting thing about that analysis is that a lot of times you then say, well, if I... If I had looked a little bit more clearly, if I had been more, my eyes had been more open to this particular angle, I could have gotten it right. I, I actually don't think that that's the case in this case. Learning what really happened does not allow us the ability to go back and say we could have gotten it right if we had only had eyes to see. I, even the people, you know, we're try, there were stories right after the election about how wise Bannon was, man. That guy was spinning the roulette wheel and betting it all on black. I mean, Donald Trump is shocked he's gotten here. Everybody made a gamble on this thing. I really don't think that you you or me or anybody else was somehow missed big on something. This was... I don't. We talked about what the best way to say it. Lightning in a bottle, perfect storm. I believe you called it something different. Yeah, this, this wasn't a perfect storm. The analogy... I mean, Bannon's strategy worked, but it was the only strategy they had. It's, it's, like, it's like saying Jack Bicknell, the Boston college coach in the 80s, was an offensive genius. Because in the last play of the game, the right. Friday after Thanksgiving at the Orange Bowl, right. he told Doug Flutie to run back, throw the, it's the there's only one play left, throw the ball into the end zone or as far as you can and hope one of our guys yeah. catches it. And now all of a sudden, he's invented a brand new offense. That's what happened on Election Day. Exactly. They could not have recreated this in a vacuum if they tried. It is the equivalent of the plant tells you on Friday, here's your last check, and we're closing down, or we're automating your job, or we're shipping it overseas. Your new wife, jump in the back of your, of, your, of your car, drive to Vegas, bet it all on black, and it comes through to avoid homelessness. That's what happened on Election Day. It's not a replicatable model. There are a couple of things we could have seen. I do think we could That's have seen. That's the important part, just to echo. It's not a replicatable no, model. No, it is not. And I think you're, and I think, by the way, you are seeing Trump acknowledge that in the hodgepodge way he's putting together his cabinet. In that, and, and particularly, and, 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 you know, there's this notion that never Trump was a Ted Cruz subsidiary. And I told you all along it was not. That there was just a fraction of what the never Trump thing was. A lot of it was. A lot of it, and I know because I was deeply involved in that. A lot of the free to get, there was, there were some real hardcore constitutional conservatives involved in the free the delegates. 
But, you know, I, I sat on calls and listened to guys who were John Kasich's political advisors and things of like that, Jeb Bush types, okay? And so you can see with putting these people in his cabinet, he is, understands that he cannot win again doing it this way. He's going to need a better base turnout than what he received in 2016. And so he is trying to win over more of these establishment, moderate, progressive, neocon, whatever term du jour you want. You can see Trump is trying to woo them and win them back over with some of the appointments that he's making. Final story and some whiplash uh, in this story. Texas Women's University is advising students and faculty not to use the word holiday when describing events in December because it connotates religious tradition that might be offensive to non-religious people. I No. Stop compromising with these fools. You compromised by saying holiday. That wasn't good enough to begin with. Learn your lesson. Who's the fool? The one who compromises, the, the, the fool who asserts these things or the one who compromises with said fool? Who is the bigger fool here, Obi-Wan? Know what I'm saying? Amen. The fool or the fool who follows him? You're listening to Steve Dace. Check us out online at stevedace.com, where you get show archives and opinions each day. You're listening to Steve Dace. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go... So this time of year, all of us are being asked to help those less fortunate for a lot of worthy causes. But we on this show believe there is no better cause than the gospel. For example, for right now, for $98, you can reach 18 children in some of the most troubled and dangerous parts in the world with the message of God's Son and salvation. Children just like Peter. When the Heart for Lebanon team found little Peter sitting by the road selling water bottles, he was brokenhearted and had just been shaken up by the Lebanese police. I was selling water so my family could survive. We left Syria because of the war. My daddy was shot and killed right in front of me. My mother grabbed me and we came to Lebanon. Peter is one of the thousands of children who have fled the horrific effects of war and terrorism. Most are living in makeshift tent cities with dirt and disease everywhere. It's the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. But Heart for Lebanon is there, providing a Christ-centered education. It was over two years since I went to school. But thanks to Heart for Lebanon, I'm learning again and I know I have a future. I don't have to sell water bottles anymore. You can provide a future and a hope for these innocent victims of war. Your gift of just $98 will help Heart for Lebanon bring the gospel to 18 refugee children. That's an entire classroom at the Hope Center, Heart for Lebanon's school and faith community, established and growing right in the midst of this refugee crisis. Please be as generous as you can. Kids like Peter are depending on you. Your one-time Christmas gift of just $98 can reach 18 children just like Peter right where they are with the gospel. Just $98.
to reach 18 children like Peter. If if you think that's a worthwhile investment, please call 844-441-9966. That's 844-441-9966. If it's easier, just go to my website at stevedace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. Click on the banner right there on my website at stevedace.com. Again, this is going to be the best $98 you've ever spent. I mean, you can send the gospel to 18 children just like Peter, whose story you just heard, all over the world in places where these are some of the darkest places in the world. Now, we can send the light of the gospel to those places. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 3 here tonight on the Steve Dace Show, here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review, coming up in about 15 minutes. Worldview Wednesday will conclude our series looking back at the lessons you, the voters, taught us in the 2016 election. One final installment in this series, and we're going to take a look, take a look at the lessons taught to the media. So we will have to, we'll have to contain Erzin's enthusiasm as the media receives uh, a little comeuppance coming up here in about 15 minutes. But first, let's get to three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? Question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. Indeed it is. These are the three questions our producer Aaron gets to ask us about anything. Nothing off limits each and every night at this time. Nothing's too intimate, too tawdry, uncomfortable. He can put us on the spot, but... He has to answer the same questions himself. That's how we keep it real, yo. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Question one. Bigger threat, foreign threat to the United States, Russia, or radical Islam? Or something else. I I would say they are different threats. I don't know know enough to quantify what is a bigger threat. I think they present different threats. You know, uh, I just saw somebody post this on Twitter 10 minutes ago. Uh, Obama's trashing the FBI. Republicans are trashing the CIA. Um, other people are trashing the Electoral College. And the point they were making is this is exactly what a gangster dictator trying to reassert Russian supremacy in the world wants to see. I don't believe Putin cared about Donald Trump winning the election. I think Putin wants to cause chaos. I think I think Vladimir Putin is an agent of chaos. And... And, and I think that's 
I think there's a, there's a there's a Lord nefarious aspect of Vladimir Putin. I, I don't think he I don't think he really cares if America tilts towards pacifism on the left or patriotism on the right. He he just wants to watch the world burn. That's exactly right. I just think he wants chaos. I think he wants he wants a morality. That is what he wants, and he wants to pit various factions and groups within our country against one another. And I think he has the ability to become an occupying force that radical Islam does not. I mean, ISIS, a couple of years ago, was on the march territorially, and now they are not. But they also are a different animal in that they are amorphous in air in, 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 um, in the way they carry out their business. They can strike with very little overhead preparation, resources at any time, and create chaos, inflict collateral damage, high casualties. We've seen this in, even in our own country, San Bernardino, for example. So I, I, I think it's hard to gauge which is worse. I mean, you look at Putin. He is um, helping Iran, which is one of the chief developers and promoters of terrorism in the world, to create their own nuclear program. So, But on the other hand, we've also seen him, seen him deal very viciously with Islamist elements when they get in his way, Right. So I think when you're looking at Vladimir Putin, you're looking at someone who doesn't have a moral center, doesn't have any kind of moral line or any kind of quest he's trying to win other than pure, unadulterated power. He is utilitarianism personified. When you look at radical Islam, they do have a moral center. It just happens to be demonic. It happens to be immoral uh, and evil. But, they, but, there, but, but at least there's a plumb line that you know they are attempting to advance other than just whatever their vested interests are at the moment. Whether one is worse or not, I'm not smart enough to know, Todd. I just I think they're both existential. I just think they're both different. I think it's radical Islam. I think Putin is still tethered to some kind of notion of wanting to be respected on the world stage. So he has many machinations uh, in terms of the the things he's doing. He's no doubt leading on some level in terms of hacking, but unless and until that turns into shutting down the power grid in the United States or something like that. He, is he an agent of chaos? But he's he, that could the volume on that could be turned up significantly, and in my estimation would have to match the fact that we've had radical Islam plow, plow planes into buildings, into the Pentagon, etc. So I, I, I say that without underestimating what Putin is perhaps capable of is perhaps even planning at this moment. But unless until, unless and until I see more, and I pray to God I don't, I would have to go with radical Islam. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what drives Putin, and he's you know he's a half a world away. But uh, just looking at it and chucking peanuts from the cheap seats, it's probably the same thing that drives a person like Donald Trump, and it's. I want to build a legacy. I want to be remembered. Sure it is. Um, the difference is the cultures they... There's exactly. A, there, the difference is the cultures they came up in. The culture that Trump came up in provides certain restrictions on that right. that nature that, that, that Putin's does not. Exactly. So how, you see that, that manifests itself you, differently. Yeah, and you see that in taking over the Crimea yes. Peninsula. Uh, yeah. And you see that in Donald Trump. Well, I want to, I want to become a, a huge celebrity. I want to become even a bigger celebrity. So... Uh, as far as that goes, I, I, I would have to say at this point it, it's probably radical Islam, just because I think it's it's more unpredictable. It is uh, just I, I think there's less uh, restraint even than um, uh, somebody like Vladimir Putin uh, would would show. So I, I I would agree with Todd. It's it's probably radical Islam. Question two: What's one activity 
that you've never gotten to do to this point in your life, but would like to before you get too old to be able to do so. Uh, and for instance, for for me, I'll answer first. Uh, it's probably skiing or snowboarding. My my dad has been talking about this. I mean, he he used to do this um, when he whenever he got the chance to, and he's uh, he's always enjoyed it. So I would like to do that before I get too old and lose the agility and dexterity to do so. But what about you? I've gone skiing before. Um, I mean, snowboarding to me looks like it might be fun. I don't know that it's worth the risk. On the other hand, um, you know, so I'm sitting here contemplating what that would be. And I, I'm at a loss to come up with something. A red carpet premiere. I, are you ever too old for one of those? That's true. Yeah, I mean, you can you can you can that. you can wheel me out in, in for the, one of those or prop me up beside the yeah. jukebox when I die when that happens, right? I, I took it to mean like you know bungee jump, and I did that one. And you're right. I, that's what you're I thought right. the context of your that, question. And you're was. right, and I just okay. violated my own context. All right, because yeah. if that's not the context, then yeah, I could come up with numerous things yeah. I'd like mm-hmm. to do. But if the context is something I want to be able to do while I'm still physically jump, yeah. able to do mm-hmm. so, you know, skydiving is one of those things I wouldn't mind doing it, but it's not like. I've got this zeal to go and to try it, you know. Um, I'm, I've, you know, I've, I'm a. I like the, the more dangerous the ride at the amusement park, the more I like it, you know. So, um, I don't know, Todd. I can't, you know. Okay, I've got one. I'd love to do. Um, I'd love to do scuba diving with an actual somebody with a pro, you know. And not, I wouldn't want to, not out in the open ocean. I'm not, but more, more something within a, within a bay or, a, you know, like you would do if you're on a cruise or a tourist mm-hmm. site or something like that. Uh, but in a more con- controlled area. But uh, I think that'd be kind of cool. I've not had a chance to do, do that yet. Well, I, I don't think it's going to happen. I did a half Ironman once. I, 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 the dream is to ultimately do an iron man and i just don't think i have the hours in the day to spend in the pool and a bike to make that happen um but i did, did numerous uh, I, triathlons and marathons and that's what i would say but for you as for skiing i've taught all my kids at the age starting at the age of five and you right now in a place in your life don't don't do that here locally somewhere i'm no, sorry I'm, you go I'll out go i'm seriously something yeah. yes go out to colorado you will never ever regret it it's not like it's all black diamonds out there and it is you will find a level of spirituality uh that i'm confident of. well uh question three um for those of us who live in the midwest uh, we've been uh, dealing with a cold snap you know temps in the single digits and so i ask you what is the worst part about dealing with a cold snap is it a the air hurting your face b uh the fact that it's hard to breathe c any moisture at all on exposed skin freezes or D, something else entirely. And our friends, our listeners in the South are laughing at us. Right all now. of those <laughs> questions are a man code violation till after the age of 70. I, I hate complaining about the cold. Yeah, you're it. from Wisconsin. I guess I'm from I, I'm, I don't have a problem with the cold. I really don't. The snow. I, 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 the snow gets to me. Just the, 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 de- the desolation the the just the 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 feeling of being trapped and hemmed in you're mr christmas for god's sakes you can't hate snow that that's oh after it's not it's not festive after january 2nd Mm -hmm. i've tried to blight yes i've had this argument with god the last several years that that (laughs) it it cannot snow after after 
January 2nd, it's, and I never win this argument. The snow is the thing with me, not the cold. For me, it's D, car troubles. Those suck. You're listening to Steve Dace. Personally believe elitism, Marxism, atheist, government intervention, secular humanist, liberals and conservatives, materialism, nihilism, U.S. Americans, Christian, globalist, socialist, democracy. Worldview, as the word suggests, is how we look at the world around us. How do we understand life as it hits us in the face? Libertarian, Tea Partier, the free market. Nobody is without a worldview. The only question is, is it a good one or a bad one? So it becomes the glasses, the spectacles, the filter through which they're actually seeing life. And the whole universe and the world and human life is understood through that lens. This is Steve Dace. And this is Worldview Wednesday, your college philosophy class on the radio. And we are finishing up our final series of the year. This will be the last Worldview Wednesday of the year, at least for me. I don't know if people who are going to fill in for me may do it or not. We'll see. But uh, we have been doing this series on the lessons we've learned from the 2016 election, which means we're, we're talking about lessons we've learned from you. Because in this country, we have a government by the consent of the governed. And even though a lot of the people in our government tend to forget this on a frequent basis, uh, this is still a land where the people ultimately rule. So all of the lessons that we've been talking about that have been learned from 2016, you taught them. You taught us these, uh, these lessons with how things turned out on Election Day. Now, this has been a four-part series. We've already discussed the lessons that, that you taught Donald Trump on November the 8th. We've talked about the lessons that have been taught to Christian political leaders in this election as well. Last week, we talked about the lessons that you are trying to teach the Republican Party. And this week, we conclude with if any of these individual entities received a resounding message on November the 8th, it is this one. And that is the media. Todd, put that out. You can't smoke in here. Todd has been waiting four weeks for this chapter of Worldview Wednesday. Just try and stop me. So when we first started talking about doing this series after the election, that was a good full month ago before we got to tonight's chapter. After the election, there was a lot of the media calling people like me and asking, hey, how did we miss this? Right, I got called by PBS. Glenn Beck went in to meet with the New York Times. There was a lot of this going around. And there was, there was talk, hey, we're too insulated. We don't have enough ideological, cultural diversity in our newsrooms. Most of America is tuning us out. There was some earnest talk, at least it seemed to be so immediately in the aftermath, that they were interested in, in finally talking to Americans instead of at them as they have gotten away with for decades now. I remember the first time I needed to lose a whole bunch of weight. And I don't believe in dieting, so you have to change your lifestyle. And they tell you it takes about two weeks for something to become habit-forming, right? That most of the time when you give those New Year's resolutions, a lot of us are going to give here in a few weeks. 
That first grocery store trip, oh, I'm not going to buy so much sugar, et cetera, yeah. That first grocery store trip, you're you're in it, man, and you're militant, right? But then about a week or a few days or a weekend, and you're hungry or thirsty, and something that requires you to prepare it or do something different or an extra step than what you had to do when you just grabbed a, you know, a a, a, a can of pop or uh, you know some kind of sugary snack, that reality sets in, and this is where the choice begins. Those first few times, you have to choose to go against your own grain in order to ingrain a new habit. Otherwise, your body will and your mind will just retreat back to what it knows. Your, your, the, the, your synapses, your neural pathways are, are rigged with paths of least resistance. And so that's where they will go. So you have to, you have to be intentional at first about doing this. So that you can essentially rewire your own brain and retrain it to have different habits. How does that analogy play into the media's post-election aftermath? Because on November 9th and 10th, guys, we heard a lot of New Year's resolutions. We're going to change our evil ways. Right? We're going we're gonna to stop, you know... Being the pre-diabetic who puts down a you know a, uh, a you know a carton of of M and M's, right? Um, we're gonna we're gonna look at how we got into this position, but now that we're a month into this, we've reached that first true turning point, where they were gonna have to consciously act contrary to how they have in the past in order to show new habits are forming. How have they done with that? Do you believe, Todd? Well, we should have seen, if not actual hires, hiring plans from multiple news organizations to do what you're describing. You, what you need is actual conservatives in the bloodstream as soon as possible to begin a conversation, to start doing the work. Instead, what we've seen just a few days ago, one of the guys who was at, who was leaking information to the Hillary Clinton camp. I can't remember where he was a journalist. Glenn Thrush at Politico. Okay, he got hired on at... The New York Times. Yes, at the New York Times. So instead of hiring conservatives, and no, David Brooks doesn't count, uh, they're hiring this guy. So not so much. This reminds me, Steve, you might remember the movie back in the early 90s, a movie called Grand Canyon with Steve Martin and Kevin Kline. Mm-hmm. And uh, Steve Martin is a slasher movie maker in Hollywood, and he gets shot in a holdup. And Kevin Klein, his friend, goes to visit him in the hospital, and he has an epiphany, and I'm not going to make these movies anymore. And that's impressive. So the next time he sees him out of the hospital, ins- he's gone back. He's like, no, I'm doubling down on the slasher films. You know, it... Th- and they're morality tales now. There's yes. no way that was going to take that. It was going to take a level of fight and conviction that enough of those people just don't have the, 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 the people will have stood up and made their case uh, and they will feel good about themselves, but they won't go the, the distance on this. They just won't. This is like somebody going into a church, um, getting just for a fleeting moment, hearing a message that convicts them. And they think, oh, wow, maybe, maybe I should think about things differently. And then they walk out the door 
and then they start thinking about the pastor. No, they uh, the pastor. He's uh, he's he's this and he's this and he you know it's his fault. That's it, that's what the media is doing right now. They had a fleeting fleeting moment of uh, introspection, and I think it's. Uh, evidence with this whole fake news phenomenon narrative that they're pushing that no they're saying now you're the problem it's not us it's never been us you're the problem and if i may donald trump from his family and uh who's going to be running his business there's any number of legitimate questions that come out about a lot of things but for starters with your premise you have to ask yourselves would they be asking the same questions going down the same paths and did they about President Obama in similar situations? And the answer is almost always, no, of course not. No, I mean, there was fawning. I, I remember doing radio shows at this time. I mean, there was fawning. There was, this is a transcendent presidency. Newsweek ran the magazine headline, we're all socialists now. That's, that's what we have. The second coming was yes. a Newsweek headline. Yeah, I mean, well. I mean this, this was an affirmation of, of a worldview, is what it was. But these people deserve a lot of congratulations. I will explain why in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us God. The Steve Day Show. All right, back here on our final Worldview Wednesday of 2016. As we conclude our series, Lessons Learned from the 2016 Election. And this week, the conclusion is the lessons you tried to teach the media. And the first thing I think we need to do, man, is we've got to give the media some mad props. Congratulations, even. You can't make me. Oh, I think I can in this case. Because no one, no one is more responsible for electing President Trump than are they. Now, obviously, this wasn't their end game. When they gave him $2 billion with a B, $2 billion of free airtime in the primary. Because they saw the clown show. They saw the histrionics. They saw the chicanery. And they thought, Hillary is so broken and damaged. This guy's our best ticket. So when they gave him all that free coverage to build up his, his market share in the primary, this was not their master plan. Their, the master plan was to elevate a carnival barker to the GOP nomination in the hopes that this would help Hillary Clinton limp across the finish line. And what... It was a tough election year for Democrats. However, one of the lessons the media needs to learn is that it's unwise to keep a scorpion for a pet. It always ends up stinging you. So the media tried to beat a man who has endured scandal and bankruptcy for decades at his own game. And it backfired, shall we say, bigly. And now to their sheer horror. I saw earlier today the wife of George Stephanopoulos was on The View. Saw this on Twitter, not that I watched the show. Wouldn't be caught dead watching it. 
In fact, I am sure they make you watch that show in hell as part of eternal torment. But the wife of George Stephanopoulos of ABC News said that their 14-year-old daughter, 14, screamed out, no more abortions, when she saw on election night that Trump had won. That's not exactly parent of the year stuff. But that is an example of the sheer horror these people are experiencing. Based largely on a concoction of their own making. Dr. Frankenstein always ends up hating the monster he creates. Every time you read the story. And now their mouth-breathing coverage of Trump is so hysterical. I think they've inoculated him against any legit muckraking at this point. And it's very reminiscent of what conservatives did to the Clintons in the 90s. When we had years of accusations, Bill Clinton gets his security guards killed. People disappear. Hillary Clinton had Vince Foster killed to cover up her affair. From the same people who tell us Hillary Clinton is a lesbian. And then when we found out that the guy was lying on tape to a federal grand jury, half of America was like, come on, guys. Boy who cried wolf here. We've heard this all before. And it's, it's not like President Trump and all his various global entanglements couldn't create a potential tangled weave. Or tangled weave, don't you think? I do. But we may never know now. Because even if he were to turn out to be everything the left is claiming they fear he will be, Who's going to bust him for it? Who? Their media? No. I'm sure they will try. But it'll be the same mouth-breathing headlines to the same people that were already going to vote for him no matter what Donald Trump did. Because people saw the media hold on to that Billy Bush video until the most politically opportune time. Rather than releasing it much early... In the primary process, they waited until well after he was the nominee. Well after Labor Day, after the conventions, they released it. And if I may, Steve, breaking news these days, titillating, it's all about clickbait and things like that. They'll push out everything and anything under a banner headline of breaking, 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 when it is just the regular news of the day, which just makes sitting on that... All the more appalling. No doubt. I mean, is there a bigger clickbait headline than anything involving Donald Trump, number one? But especially when you throw that word into the mix and you have him on tape saying it? Exactly. But that's not the only example of why many of you won't pay attention if they've got DNA evidence of Donald Trump. More in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. Politics is a contact sport. The Steve Day Show. Continuing here on Worldview Wednesday, lessons the media needs to learn. They need to figure out why you're not paying attention. Well, how about the fact the media went after how profane Trump was this entire election? We heard this. And he is. 
But then they said nothing when Jay-Z was dropping N-bombs and F-bombs at a rally in Ohio for Hillary Clinton a week before the election. Nothing. The media that initially dismissed Hillary's fainting spell as another vast right-wing conspiracy until the actual video footage of a sickly Mrs. Clinton was released. Remember that? Last summer. The media that shared all the grisly details of Trump's troublesome ties to Putin while largely ignoring Hillary's pay-for-play scheme while she was Secretary of State. What's ironic about this is that the media actually had the goods on Donald Trump all along. They didn't have to fabricate stuff like Dan Rather did with George W. Bush in 04. Remember that fake story? Which Rather's career never recovered from. He was completely discredited. Claiming that uh, Bush had... had, uh, misrepresented his record in the Air National Guard in Texas and was basically a draft dodger. Remember that? I do. That was that was immediately pounced on, discredited. And that was before we had social media and blogs and everything else. And and his reporting was so bad in 2004 that even without social media and the tools we had to discredit guys like him now, he was gone. He was gone back then. That's how bad it was. They didn't have to do that. There's, there's plenty of stuff on Trump, like this tape, for example. But again, the bias is so systemic that they couldn't get the goods on him. And playing the media is Trump's racket. And I don't use that term as a hater term. That's his game. I mean, this is the same guy who once created his own PR flack with himself impersonating this person just because he likes to troll the media. Trump and the media have a symbiotic relationship. You cannot have one without the other. They feed off of each other, and it's not in a a good way. It's the way a a parasite feeds off of a host. The parts are interchangeable, which means in that kind of a relationship, one day you're the windshield, the the next day you're the bug. Either way, you end up smeared just the same. And that's what Trump does to the media every day. And the reason why you couldn't nail him, even when you had the goods, is because right now the American people have the same disdain for you that they do genital warts. Even a marginally credible media would have taken Trump out before the Iowa caucuses. Pulitzers would have been awarded by Super Tuesday. Instead, an election that should have provided the media its next Woodward and Bernstein ended with Trump making a congratulatory phone call to discredited conspiracist Alex Jones, who's worried about the fact we're, quote, making the friggin' frogs gay, unquote. Alex Jones got the credit the media deserved. Trump called Alex to congratulate him when really the mainstream media, the liberal media, did all of the work here. They did all of the heavy lifting here. Now, it doesn't have to end this way. They don't have to be thrown onto the ash heap of our republic. Although, that is the way this is going to end unless they do one simple thing. And this is the biggest lesson the media was taught of them all by the voters in this election. And that lesson is this. You need to redefine or broaden your definition of diversity.
you need to redefine or broaden your definition of diversity. Real diversity is not just skin deep. You need to look around your newsroom. Now, one ombudsman of the New York Times recently admitted they've got one guy on their op-ed staff who gets religion and nobody else does. He literally said that just the other day. You know, look around your newsroom and ask, how many people here go to some sort of orthodox, smallow, orthodox or traditional church service on a regular basis? How many people do this? How many people in our newsrooms are pro-life on any level? How many of them voted for Trump? In other words, you need to ask, how much of America is actually in your newsrooms? How much of America? Because that, that is real diversity, and it is simple to obtain. All you've got to do is go after the American story as it's unfolding in real time, rather than advancing your preferred narrative to tell people what they're actually seeing instead. All you do is your jobs, which you haven't done all this time. The great misnomer about Fox's original success, I believe, is not that it appealed to a Republican audience. It's that Fox, Fox's view of American culture and Americana was not initial skepticism to suspicion. They didn't look to... The only stories you saw about clergy on Fox weren't... And remember, when Fox first started dominating the ratings was the Catholic Church abuse scandal during the early 2000s. You would hear about the church on Fox other than scandals like that. Like this morning on Fox and Friends, a show that often gets panned for its just flat-out Trump, you know, jock sniffing. They had Franklin Graham on today to talk about Operation Christmas Child, what she does for millions of, of kids through Samaritan's Purse every Christmas all over the world. Would they do that interview on CNN? Would Franklin Graham get to come on to talk about the, the, his ministry doing good works on CNN? Or would they only have him on to talk about political activism? See my point? See, the, I think the initial secret to Fox's success and why it built such a loyal following is that it didn't treat traditional Americana with the instant skepticism and suspicion all the rest of the progressive media has. You're being kind by just saying skepticism and... If not outright disdain and hostility, yes, yes, you're right, I am being kind. That's what it's going to come down to. You're going to actually have to care more about the stories and the people you're covering than advancing your own narrative. That's it. That's all you have to do. It's just that simple. But I think we both know, for you, it's not that easy. Listening to Steve Dace. He has not yet begun to offend. This is Steve Dace. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. 
Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. So, gentlemen, we are concluding our final Worldview Wednesday of the year with the conclusion of our series on lessons learned from the 2016 election. As we talk about the lessons the media needed to learn, what did you learn during this conversation? Aaron, I'll start with you. From this particular conversation tonight, it's clear to me, and we've, we've talked about this before, that uh, the, I, I don't have confidence that the media is going to be able to do its job anymore. I think this is the end. This is uh, I mean, Journalism is, is not a thing anymore. The media actually doing its job and finding the truth, holding our leaders accountable. I don't think that that's really going to happen in the way that it's, it's supposed to happen in a society, in a country like ours, which means that what? It's incumbent upon each of us to do their jobs for them. And what does that look like? That means having high standards for what we believe. I see way too many people, and I'm sure you, both of you do as well, and we've documented this before, who just believe almost any, it's just shocking, they believe almost any and everything they see online through Facebook, through through all the social media platforms. So that means having high standards, you know, it means having high standards for what you believe. And that means having multiple sources, doing the jobs that an actual reporter would do and not just falling for everything that you see. I think that's the big takeaway for this conversation. And yeah, you're right that the media needs to learn the lesson about redefining what they mean by diversity. But at the same time, I think it's more incumbent upon us to do their jobs for them going forward. I follow a lot of my former colleagues on social media. The terms are being thrown around about uh, people generically who voted for Trump without any discerning dummies, people who voted against their own interests. Uh, The contempt is only getting more and more at each passing day. The bile is growing in your average journalist's mouth. We are going to see in the next four years uh, the uh, Captain Ahab and the White Whale. It is the fight to and this thing. I don't. Journalism is absolutely not going to look like anything like its former self, good, bad, or otherwise. Donald Trump. I can see him bringing to bear all the forces of uh, a law against various journalism entities for various breaches. Uh, um, libel you, you know that he would go ahead and do that if a push came to shove and quite frankly one thought one on one hand that makes me very very nervous on the other hand i know that the journalism world deserves it they are just flat out liars in many cases and this has to stop because this country cannot take this any longer they will either stop or the consuming public will make it stop one way or the other john 317 you're listening to steve dace 